Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Julian, and I'm Head of Social Sciences at the British Library, and I'm really pleased to be chairing this panel on impact as a driver for open access. Um, being a little bit abusing my position of a chair, it's been quite interesting this last two weeks for me. We had a uh, conference yesterday at the library looking at the sort of long view of impact, so trying not to talk about REF. Um, and we also, I did a paper at the um, um, implicate impli um, implication, implications of Finch conference organised by the Academy yesterday, so uh, last week rather, so it feels a little bit like this is the impact and open access fortnight for me. Um, but we've got three great speakers to look at impact as the driver for open access this afternoon. Um, we've got, pro, uh, starting with Professor uh, Stephen Curry, who's a structural biologist in the Faculty of Natural Sciences at Imperial College. Our second speaker, and we're changing the order slightly from the programme, is uh, going to be Robert Keeley, from the, who's head of digital uh, services at the Wellcome Library, and then Mark Thorley, who's head of science information and data management coordinator for the UK's Natural Environment Research Council, and one of RC UK leads on open access will go third. Um, so I'm going to uh, sit down with uh, no further ado, and Stephen. Thank you, Jude. Uh, thank you all for staying to the last session. Uh, I'm going to try and keep my remarks uh, relatively brief so that we'll have plenty of time for questions and answers. Impact. What's the point of a life if you don't have some kind of impact? Uh, at least that's how we all start out. By the time you get to my age, uh, it doesn't seem to matter so much anymore. <laughs> it's just good still to be alive. <laughs> But, uh, so, but the particular type of impact we are here to talk about is the impact that arises ultimately in the long term somehow via a black box from uh, academic research. Uh, and part of the reason for thinking about that is so that we can justify to our fellow citizens, taxpayers, and their government representatives uh, that the money spent on our activities is money well spent. Now, impacts obviously as I attended the last session, the sort of the vitriolic uh, Sweeney Fest uh, that uh, <laughs> arose. And it's obviously clear that even at this late stage with the deadline coming in 2014, and there's an awful lot of fuzziness still around the idea of impact. It's a one word that means lots of things to lots of different people and we're not quite sure even yet whether we measure it or assess it or uh, write stories about it and whether that's um, going to be enough. So it's uh, a concept that's a bit fuzzy. Uh, no one in that previous session defined the units of measurement. I don't know whether it's meters or I'm a physicist by training, so we were always taught to talk about define the units of something, whether it's people, whether it's citations, whether it's impact factors. Actually, I'll tell you the answer to that one straight away. It isn't. <laughs> and um, so it ends up being a difficult thing to, to get hold of, and there's always the recurrent danger that anything you try to measure sort of changes as you... Uh, try to capture it. So is a bird in a cage the same as one flying in the air? There's another philosophical question for you that I think we might ponder. But I do want, even again, to sort of push back on the impact agenda a bit, only so that we keep the discussion open and keep questioning amongst ourselves what it is we mean by impact, and so that that discussion even goes on uh, with the public and then even with uh, our government representatives. 
Now, we are talking about open access, and the question before us is, is open access a driver to um, our impact? Is, which, which is it? Is impact a driver for open access? Is open access a driver for impact? It doesn't really matter uh, that I've forgotten, because uh, fundamentally, uh, it goes both ways. I don't think there's any uh, doubt that part of the government's agenda in terms of impact fits quite nicely with uh, its initiatives on open, on open access. But at the same time, I think then the rise of the open access movement, which is certainly in this country at least also partly independent, of course, of government initiatives. It's been around a lot longer than the present coalition. Uh, and uh, is something that's self-propelled through technological changes and is also then creating opportunities um, to expand our impact as a community of researchers uh, with the people that we are supposed to be influencing and affecting. So. Certainly, uh, the agenda has come um, from the top uh, in terms of both impact and the REF, uh, but also then the initiative on open access, uh, certainly in the UK, as it's uh, defined. And uh, Willits put it in a speech back in May. This was, uh, or this is from a Guardian article written on the eve of his speech to a publisher's uh, meeting. So the coalition is committed to the principle of public access to publicly funded research results, and this is a principle that was picked up and enshrined now in uh, the Finch report. That's where both technology and contemporary culture are taking us. He's a smart man, Mr. Willits. And it's how we can maximize the value and impact generated by our excellent research base. So the value, uh, people automatically, of course, then think of economic value, and that is certainly an important consideration. Uh, I think we all enjoy the fruits of the benefit of the UK's economic prosperity. Or, or we will do when we get it back again, I guess. Um, but uh, even so, we still have, um, well, we may not have money in the bank, uh, but we're good for a loan. That seems to be the current economic situation. <laughs> so long may that last at least, uh, at least until I'm dead anyway. Um, but so that's coming down from the top, and it's the, there is an economic aspect to this. It's not just about, okay, you need research to generate widgets so that people can go and buy them, and that uh, makes them... The, merry-go-round, but it's more about also getting value for money from uh, scientific investment, making sure that, you know, what, how we spend it, it's spent well. That's obviously a good impulse in any uh, activity. And there are many aspects where open access can um, provide that. One, obviously, is through faster exchange of uh, research information, both within the research community so that they, the people on the coalface are work better, smarter, faster, but also then that the dissemination to industry uh, and the sort of uh, uh, article-based, but also then people-to-people-based contacts uh, are generated in order to make sure that the information is disseminated. So we have greater access from industry. Uh, we have a, a policy in this country, of course, of uh, putting an emphasis on gold, open access. Uh, and part of the reason for that, and I guess Mark will speak to that potentially, in his remarks is that it's worth paying for because you get a CCBY license, which links back then to the remarks that Cameron was making in, in terms of maximizing the reuse value of any scientific or research output. It's the freest form of exchange uh, on, on a Creative Commons basis, almost. There is some debate, I think, within the academic community about whether or not that's worth it. Certainly some uh, in, in some wings of the open access movement uh, do query that. But again, I think it's a valid question and something that we should um, continue to, um, to ask. But you know, the, the question is, a lot of this value will actually only come 
once we get worldwide open access, which is um, the holy grail, as it were, we are in very much a noisy, uh, dangerous, risky, complicated transition process, a potentially uh, expensive one. We hope, we think, we might have the costs uh, at a reasonable level and under control. Uh, but of course, nobody's putting a date on when we can finally make sure that the whole research enterprise across the world is working at a global scale. Certainly uh, in the UK, we hope to be make doing our bit within five years, but of course we need everybody else to jump on board as well. And public access is uh, a very important dimension to that. Again, as David Sweeney said then, it's, uh, a lot of the impact comes from uh, the value of research that's then transmitted outside the academy uh, and into the public, not just uh, to industrial users, but of course to our hopefully increasingly scientifically engaged uh, fellow citizens uh, who will um, benefit in these complicated days, who have to engage with complicated political decisions, hopefully better than some of our politicians do, uh, but we'll need the information in order to do that. So there are other drivers for open access as well. The most obvious one, of course, is the World Wide Web. We wouldn't be here if it didn't exist uh, talking about it. Uh, God knows what the uh, ref would be like if you didn't have the uh, internet at your fingertips for gathering information as we saw in the uh, previous session. That gives us the faster exchange, but then of course also then gives us the uh, text mining facility that will allow us to lever a new level of uh, richness of uh, information from the data that is already out there in a way that one could never have done based using paper-based um, information. There's also this notion of cultural enrichment, and it's not just that now we have the internet and BitTorrent and uh, Napster, as it used to be, uh, that every you know, information wants to be free and should be set free and should cost nothing. Um, that is a, a, a misrepresentation, I think, of the principles of open access, which you will sometimes still hear. Uh, there are people who don't like it, who put about a little bit of misinformation, and that is one of the uh, uh, noisier pieces of that. Uh, it obviously has to be paid for, it has to be seen as a, a, a research cost, but it's part of the uh, value, a part of the reason for paying that research cost is to make sure that uh, the information is spread as far and wide in our society as we, as we can. The whole process of discovery, the whole process of getting people involved and engaged in uh, finding out about the world around them is something that I think uh, makes life worth living. If it's all about widgets, then count me out. So, but uh, making it accessible to the public isn't just a matter of uh, changing the license and making, putting the paper online because scientific papers, research papers of all sorts are often written in a fairly dry technical style and one might critique that to a degree. I'm sure we could do a bit better, but much of that dryness and technicality and jargon serves a very good purpose because it frees up the efficient exchange of information between people who know the business and work well within it. Uh, but one of the nice things, I think, and this is, uh, again, the, the, the innovative aspect that's coming through uh, the open access movement and the disruption that the internet is causing. So we have this new journal, eLife, launching just a week today, uh, officially, but they've already started publishing some of their papers. Here's one. Um, I'm not even sure what uh, human polycomb repressive complex 2 is uh, myself. I know it's a protein. But actually, what eLife are doing nicely is that for every paper, then, they have a commitment that they will provide a digest. They're calling it, I think, textbook digest, but it's a, effectively a lay summary that will make the contents accessible to people. And I think this is a really important uh, development in the publishing um, 
for it. Now, obviously, there have been uh, things like this in the past. This is not completely new, but it's a commitment to doing it for everything in an open access basis that I think adds a particular uh, uh, extra level of, of value. And this is important not just for making sure that the information is accessible to the general public and so that the level of public discourse on science and research can be lifted, but actually it's going to be just as important, I think, for interdisciplinary research because these days science has become so specialized that you know, I can look at nature, but you know, I will look at the structural biology papers. I might look at one or two others. Uh, I have got a degree in physics, but I almost never read the physics papers because I can't get past the first line. And I might be able to wade through the News and Views article, uh, which will digest it uh, for me, but still in a relatively technical basis. And so uh, at the margins between disciplines, I think it's very important to make sure that scientists can talk to one another. And this is one of the uh, ways in which I think this can uh, be lubricated. So there's benefit in this uh, uh, accessibility idea, uh, both within and without uh, the scientific and research community. One of the um, conundrums that we face and one of the sort of most difficult cultural challenges uh, for open access, despite uh, impact, uh, is to get rid of the uh, apparatus of the impact factor, which I will wrote about back in uh, August. And uh, this is something I know that HEFSI have in give, given instructions that impact factors are not to be used and citations won't be used in assessing them, but I know from many case studies also anecdotes that this advice is being widely disregarded as departments around the country are preparing their cases because they're sifting through even just their own staff. They're not reading the papers that they're uh, 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 thinking about submitting for the ref. They're looking at the title of the journal, which is a proxy, of course, simply for looking at the impact factor. And that's got to stop because the impact factor is a corrosive and incorrect statistic to use uh, as the measure of a single paper or a single individual, okay? It's wrong, it's bad, and it's hurting the whole uh, academic enterprise. Now, there are many interesting developments coming along, and I, we, need to, we need to have more than HEFSI's telling people that you can't use, you shouldn't use impact factors for the ref. We need more uh, stakeholders in the community to do that. I warmly applaud Welcome's open access policy, which has this statement in which they affirm the principle that it's the intrinsic mirror of the work and not the title of the journal which, in which an author's work is published that should be considered in making funding decisions. And that message needs to be repeated again and again when every panel meets, when every promotion panel uh, meets to decide on uh, outcomes. And PLOS One uh, has a similar sort of attitude. All articles in all journals should be assessed on their own merits rather than on the basis of the journal. And we need that message to be picked up by all funders, by all university institutions, uh, and everybody, and also by the Royal Society, by Nobel laureates who can declare their labs um, open access and free of journal impact factors. This is one of the crucial cultural changes that will need to take place to mitigate the risks to junior researchers. It's okay for people like me to decry impact factors, but there are PhD students and postdocs who uh, see themselves heading into a system that is fundamentally flawed, and it's not fair to expect them to carry the risk associated with breaking free um, from that. And because you know, uh, large publishers know that the impact factor is an uh, allure, then that gives them free reign to maintain expensive article processing charges. And if we are wanting to get proper value for money, then we need to break free of that particular addiction. 
So um, we have to actually help them to do that. It's not enough just to say, right, we, we can't use impact factors, don't use them, okay? We have to replace them with something else. And part of that will be ensuring that there are good lay summaries of every paper so that it's actually easy for a non-specialist because often grant applications and promotion application, uh, promotions um, are considered by people who aren't necessarily immediately inside your field and so can easily assess your contribution. And so if you have a, a, a digest or a summary, then that helps them. And um, I am unfortunately missed the session this morning on alt metrics. Um, this is a very interesting growth area. I know there's a lot of debate about it. I know there's a lot of mistrust. Uh, but I think it's something where we, you know, we simply have to do more work and have to find ways of um, capturing an essence, I'm not even going to say uh, measure or assess, uh, than the significance of uh, different pieces of work for both within and without the scientific community. So finally, you know, getting rid of the impact factor is not the only cultural challenge that we face. Um, we actually need to get more academics to learn about what open access really is and how it can help them in delivering on one of their missions, which is as a responsible member of society, to make sure that their science, their research, is disseminated to the people who have largely paid for it. I do think that's a duty that we should all feel. Now, some will find it a bit easier than others, but I do think it has to become to be seen as an integrated part um, of our job description. Uh, see, public, see publishing your research as part of engagement, so it shouldn't just be enough to publish the paper. You should uh, take on the task of maybe writing the lay summary. You may need assistance in that. I'm sure there will be ways of uh, uh, bringing that assistance into the system. Taking responsibility for publishing costs. At the minute, too many academics simply don't know what their libraries are paying for subscriptions. They just expect uh, the information on demand. And I'm hoping, actually, that the move to gold and the allocation of funds, now that it's been made, uh, will actually engender quite a few arguments at university level about how much to pay for an APC and is it worth it for the venue where you're publishing? Are you really getting value for money? At the minute, too many researchers don't see those costs. And if we want an efficient, efficient market where that's going to work to drive down the total cost of publishing, which has got out of control, then uh, we need open access uh, to do that. There's a large problem for uh, learner societies uh, residual problem, many of whom rely on journal subscriptions, most of which, of course, is sourced from outside the UK. I don't pretend to have the answer to that one, but uh, it's a problem that simply has to be faced, and it's not one that we can allow uh, to uh, block the uh, move to open access. So that is all I was going to say, so I will sit down. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Um, move on now to Robert Kiley from um, The Welcome. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I work at The Welcome Trust. And I'm actually, um, my real job is in the library, but for the last sort of five or six years, I've been, I've been one of the trust spokespeople on, on open access. And normally my talk is very straightforward. I just talk about you should just do open access. Today I'm going to try and, try and answer the, the essay question which was set for us about impact. Obviously, um, Stephen's already stolen some of my thunder, the Welcome Trust policy and so on, but I'll, um, I will persevere. Um, so what I'm going to try and do is give a brief overview of, of how the Welcome Trust um, undertakes evaluation, just to set it in context. Then specifically address the question about open access, the driver um, for impact and then just try to discuss that fairly briefly. And I'll try and do this in about 10 minutes or so, giving us plenty of time for questions, 
and perhaps with a bit of luck, we'll even get away a bit earlier. But to start with, it's probably worth saying that we don't always know the impact of the research when it's done. So there's a wonderful quote from uh, Sir Alec Jeffries, uh, the inventor of DNA fingerprinting, that when they came across that, they didn't really understand the significance of, of, of the change that would bring about. So it, was just, it just happened. So at the time, we did not know the impact that would have. And secondly, there's always a real long road to discovery. So research happens, but it takes many, many years for that research, or can take many, many years for that research to become, for the impact of that research to be truly recognized. Just a couple of examples. Um, IVF was sort of... Uh, first sort of uh, research was done in the early 1960s, but it was it was almost uh, it was late 70s before this, this this research really came to fruition. So at the time, trying to measure uh, the Im the impact of Roberts and Edwards research would have been very difficult. And there are many 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 examples like that. Okay, so the Wellcome Trust. Um, when people apply for funding, um, particularly if one of they're looking for one of our investigator awards, we do ask them to tell us what their, what their previously research has done. But interestingly, we asked them to indicate the, the most significant peer-reviewed research paper. So we deliberately, right from the start, move away from the idea of you know, list your top um, papers in Nature, Cell, and Science, which is the, the shorthand for uh, high-impact journals. So we asked them to, for them to assess their, their most significant papers. And though, and those citations that can be a really useful measure... Um, you know, uh, of an impact of someone's research. We fund a broad church of research. So we have, obviously, we're our largest funder and element is in the, the biomedical sciences, but we do fund stuff across a whole range of activities, uh, including medical humanities, uh, public engagement. So some of our public engagement grants may result in, in theatre or, or stuff like that, which is never going to get uh, citations. And I say, this is all the things we, we, we try and measure across. So it's simply having a simple crude statistic is, is A, very difficult and, and probably just not, not practical. So we try and measure across a whole range of, of different activities. But sometimes citations are useful, and obviously we do rely heavily on, on bibliometric analysis. Uh, so this was a, a, a graph someone uh, trust supplied to me, which just tries to show... Uh, normalized citations. So just to make this clear, in, in 2011, there are about 4,400 articles attributed to Wellcome Trust. And if the typical citation is one, then Wellcome Trust articles typically get two citations. So if it's typically 20 citations per article, Wellcome Trust articles would get 40. So that's quite a useful measure. We quite like showing this sort of graph to try to demonstrate that Wellcome Trust research has impact. Anyway, so let's go back to the, the essay question about uh, open access. And the very first trigger of why we developed an open access policy way, way back in, the, in sort of 2003, 2004, was this, this infamous occasion of the, the access denied. And I've told this story so many times, I, I, you know, everyone here had heard of it. But just in case you're the one person who hasn't heard it, this was a story when Sir Mark Wolpert, or then Mark Wolpert, joined the trust, he'd been at Imperial previously, had access to a huge library, joined the Wellcome Trust, he still had access to a huge library, but the Wellcome Library is much more focused on the history of medicine. Anyway, he did a PubMed search, found an article, 
click through and got the famous access denied. And even though this was research which the Wellcome Trust and Medical Research Council had jointly funded. So it was like this eureka moment. We spent £5 million on this piece of research and I'm being asked to spend another $30 to get access. So that was like the trigger. But right from, right from that moment, we recognised that open access really had the potential to uh, have, an ha I can't say have an impact on our impact, but you know what I mean, to, to, to uh, increase the impact of the research we spun, of the research we, we spend. And right back in, in 2005, in our very first um, newsletter to our grant holders to talk about open access, we highlighted the fact that this has the potential to um, increase the impact of your, of your research. So how are we trying to, to measure that? Well, one thing we're doing, and we've been doing since 2005, is, is putting our money where our mouth is. And we've provided funding to uh, institutions to cover article processing charges. So as Cameron alluded to earlier, um, publication costs are really just research costs. So our view is that just as our Wellcome Trust funding is used to pay for various things, mice, central futures, whatever it happens to be, so there's funding available to pay an open access publishing costs. And you can see that we're actually spending um, a reasonable sum of money. In the 11-12 year, we committed, what's that, about 4.5 million. And though that, that is a lot of real money, um, our, our sort of sums still suggest that if 100% of Wellcome Trust research was, was funded through a gold APC route, and assuming that APC average prices are remain pretty constant, it would represent about 1.25 to 1.5% of our research spend. It does obviously mean that there's 1.5% of our research spend which we're not spending on research, but I think we genuinely believe that this has the potential to increase the reach of the research we're, we're funding. So what is the evidence for that, that statement? Well, I think there's two things to say here. Certainly, there's no one denies that open access articles are downloaded more. Even OA skeptics concede that number of downloads are greater for open access articles than for toll access articles. Um, it's fair to say, however, that the discussion about whether those greater downloads lead to greater citations, which is sort of the, the currency of the researcher, I think the jury is still out on that one. There are researchers, and there's been studies such as um, by Eisenbach, who, who, point, who, who, who conclude that open access does lead to greater citations. Equally, there are studies, uh, Phil Davis is the most uh, vocal of, of these uh, from this camp, who, can, who argue to the contrary. I suspect I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I still don't know which way this is going to go. Logically, you would assume that if more articles are being downloaded, some of them might be read, and therefore, logically, you might start to see a small increase in, in citation difference. So I think the numbers are still too small at the moment to see that. But just sort of from a, um, a logical standpoint, that seems to me be logical, but other but fair to say at the moment that jury is still clearly out on that. The other benefit, of course, open access is is reuse, and the the, the prime example of that, which we cite at all these events we, we come along to, is of course the the Human Genome Project. 
So from the get-go, the uh, Welcome and NIH agreed that this data would be put into the public domain as it was, as it was sequenced. And there's been various studies, and this is my, my favorite study, which effectively said that for, for every dollar the US government invested in this project, it generated $141 of economic activity. So that's a huge, huge return on, on investment. And um, you know, if we could only do that today, perhaps we wouldn't be in such dire straits. But clearly, um, a real benefits from reusing that, that content. And again, um, this has been alluded to already, but we, our policy on open access, which has been out since 2005, has recently been uh, tweaked to simply say that going forward from April the 1st, uh, 2013, when we pay an article processing fee, uh, we now we will require that article to be made uh, available under, under a CCBY license. And our belief is that that will enable this content to be, to be fully reused, which again will increase the, the reach and, and impact of that. So this is what I, when I was writing this the other day, described almost like the Heineken effect. So by having research, by the idea that content can be uh, promiscuous, you can go wherever it, it likes. So if you want to take an article and put it on another website, you can do that. So I think that, that means it does have the opportunity to reach more people. We did have a, uh, a case study the other, a few months back, where an article which we thought was open access, because we had paid an open access fee, was taken and put on another website, which the website owner believed would, would attract greater usage. It was a, 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 an article about, um, about AIDS, and it was felt that having that on a, a site which the community might use, rather than PubMed Central or UK Europe PubMed Central, was a good idea. It was an open access article, so they took the article and they put it on another, on another website. Because that other website had advertising on it, um, that was subject to a takedown notice. So that's why, so that was an example of where we want our content to be promiscuous. It can be wherever it wants to be. It can be on GitHub if it needs to be. It can be in Wikipedia. But to make sure that can happen without the, the, the dignity of getting a takedown notice, we need that research to be licensed um, with a CCBY license. And we believe that, that that will enable new derivative works to be created from, the, from our research. So it could be lay summaries. We've seen an example of eLife, but eLife are doing it themselves on their own articles. Perhaps other people would want to take a more holistic approach and try and do lay summaries for a broader cohort of papers. And perhaps that will cost some money and they want to sell that as a subscription service. Well, that's a, a value add. As long as the original article is still freely available, then that would be a perfectly acceptable use uh, from our perspective. And equally with, with text mining, if you want to text mine our content and that leads to the generation of new knowledge, again, that should be, uh, that should be possible from our, from our perspective. Um, we are exploring the, the, um, the use of altmetrics, and I won't dwell on this, on, on this slide particularly, but just, just to repeat um, what Stephen said earlier, that you know, we've always said it's, um, it's a content of what our researchers publish, not the not the, the vehicle they happen to have published it in. And I think that's easy to say, and I, I, su I suspect it's quite difficult for our committees to adhere to, but it is a very, very key part of the, the policy. And there really is no shortcut to this. You have to read this stuff, just seeing that is in nature or science. 
ultimately isn't good enough, and that's, that's been our position for, for many years. We want people, want our research, we want our committees, when they're evaluating researchers, they have to actually read this stuff. So I say we're looking at altmetrics. Um, there's a couple of screen grabs here. I won't dwell on this. One thing we, in fact, this one I picked the wrong screen grab. What I was trying to show you was we looked to see who has tweeted. And there was one article which was about some policy implementation, and what we thought was significant was that it had been retweeted by the WHO um, and CDC, which was, you know, for us quite an important uh, message. It meant that our research was being looked at by you know, other other policy other policymakers. So I'm going to finish there um, to just conclude by saying that increasing the impact of Wellcome Trust funding research was a key factor in, in developing the policy. We're already seeing how impact in terms of downloads is, is increasing dramatically when articles are, are made open access. We believe that the reuse argument will further increase the reach of our, of our research. And I think our sort of bottom line view on all this is that if you're serious about maximising the impact of your research, you would make it has to be made open access. I don't can't, can't quite see why anyone would, would want to put their research behind a, a publisher paywall. So I'll stop there and thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Robert. And over to Mark. I was reminded then of the, while well, Mark's setting okay. himself up, of the um, thing that you just because you've don't downloaded an article, you haven't necessarily read it, and there's that pile <laughs> that you think you've read by osmosis. Is that your photocopy? Yeah. <laughs> Is that there? there we go. Brilliant. Well, again, thank you very much for the invitation to talk today. Um, I'd like you to hold those last four points that Robert put up in your mind. Because they actually summarise our policy quite well, and I can actually skip through a lot of what I was going to say, if you can just remember the last four points. <coughs> so, my name is Mark Thorley. I work for Natural Environment Research Council, where I deal with things mainly around research data and the management of research data and the dissemination of that data and getting it out into the public sphere and doing a lot of work in what's called the knowledge exchange side of NERC um, to basically generate impact and value from the data from the research we fund. But one of the things I do in my spare time is I've turned into one of the, as someone said, I've become the poster boy for the Research Council's policy and open access because I happen to chair the group within RCUK which deals with issues around open access. So what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to give a very brief summary of our policy and then hopefully use that as a very much pick on... on, on what the previous speaker said, of why that we see that as helping drive impact. So I think it's fair to say, um, you know, we didn't, when we were drafting our policy, you know, impact was just one of the areas we were considering. But for us, again, opening up access to research removes the barriers that are there, and the fewer barriers there are to accessing research the more opportunities there are for other people to use it. And from that, you can drive innovation. From that, you can gain impact in a variety of spheres. So here we're not just talking about you know, the narrow definition of impact factors of journals. It's very much to us, let's get the research, the results of the research we fund, out there and accessible for other people to do stuff with and therefore you know, drive 
the value of that research, drive, you know, drive the take of that research, and therefore demonstrate the value of that research. Um, so very quickly, I'm going to talk a little bit about why we're doing our policy, you know, what the policy is and how we're going to implement it. Um, just headline figure, 11.2 billion, a lot of money. It's the amount of money the research councils have had over the current spending review period, which ends in 2014-15. It's about £2.9 billion a year, or thereabouts, is the budget of the seven research councils. Um, so we're going to be investing, when we're up to full steam, we'll be investing round about 1% of that. People say it's an awful lot of money, but it'll be around about 25, 29 million, something like that, which will be round about 1% of the overall budget. So when people start saying, you know, this is really expensive, it's not a lot of money you're putting into it, I want people to th look at that figure in the context of a much larger sum of money and to again answer the question is it we think it's worth investing money in this area for us it is a relatively small amount of money because we think it will help deliver improved access to the research and through improved access improved impact why are we doing it i mean um Stephen had a, had a quote from, from the minister. I've got one from Doug Kell, slightly less important. Doug Kell is the chief executive of the Biosciences and Biotechnology Research Council. He is the chief executive who leads on the whole area of open access. And it's all about improving access to the research we, we fund to the widest community. Too often people sort of say, well, it's just access to the research community. But we as publicly funded research funders very much we speak to a much wider corpus. You know, our interest is ensuring anyone who has an interest in the research we fund has an opportunity to access that research with the fewest barriers in place. We don't know what they're going to use that research for, but by removing the barriers, we create the opportunities for people to do stuff with it. And very much, that very much chimes in with the government's openness agenda. Um, which is very much about the government having this agenda, a commitment to openness and transparency. You know, you can now find out what, what MPs' expenses are. You can find out what the, you know, the, I think any public sector contract above £500 or something, you know, the, is going up on websites sooner or later. So the government have this overall agenda about transparency of the government process. We've applied that into science and in, into research not only in terms of openness to drive, drive innovation, but it's just openness to the research process itself to help drive trust and, and, and uh, support for research. Um, trying to find some right words to express this. Um, it's, it's all about basically making the research process more transparent to allow people to... To, to improve the trust in research and allow people to see how the research has been undertaken. And there are particular bits in our new policy which speak to that. Um, but basically, trying to summarise this all, it basically means that if we've funded the research, we want to get it out there, we want to get it used. To us, dissemination is part of the research process and has to be paid for. You know, in... The science money, the research money we have, pays for libraries through indirect costs. It, pay, it will pay for the publication charges for open access. To us, it's just one of the legitimate calls on the research budget because what's the point of doing research if we can't get the stuff out there and accessed and get it used? 
So our policy basically defines what we mean by open access. It basically states our expectations that we put on the research community. And crucially, it then talks about how we expect the journals, the publishers, to comply with the policy. And it will apply to any research paper submitted for publication from the 1st of April next year, and which refers to research which is wholly or partially funded by research councils. So if a research even finished five years ago and there's a paper coming out of it, as of next April, we would like to see that in the open access. And we talked about transparency, and there are a couple of key issues in here um, which somehow, well, have tended to be overlooked in the debate about the, the, the noise about open access. And again, I think some of those will help drive the impact agenda as well. The first is basically we want a statement on who's funded the research. Just good practice when you write a paper, who has funded this research? It's part of a transparency agenda. Um, if no one's funded it, that's fine. You just say, you know, this, this research was unfunded. I've done it out of the love, the love of my heart. I've, I've done this all on my own. But we want people to say who has funded the research. The second one is we want a statement on the access to the underlying research materials. So if as a paper we want to say, how can you access the data, the samples, the specimens, the models that support that research? It doesn't necessarily mean they all have to be open access, but we want people to understand how you can access it, and if not, what are the constraints in place? And again, that's all about opening up the research, opening up the transparency, demonstrating integrity of the research we, uh, we fund. Um, so it's perfectly legitimate for someone to say, you know, the data I've used are provided by a, under confidentiality agreement by, you know, Tesco, as you say, say they supply data and about shoppers' choices and preferences. You've done some research on it, you publish that research. It's perfectly legitimate to say, we're not at liberty to pass those data on to third parties. However, if you go to Tesco and ask them, they may give the data to you. That's a perfectly legitimate statement. Um, but it's, some of you may be aware there was a report published by the Royal Society back in June about science as an open enterprise. And that speaks very eloquently to this whole area of, of, of opening up the data underpinning the research to really help drive the openness and the integrity and the transparency of the research process. So basically, we define open access to mean unrestricted online access to peer-reviewed and published scholarly research papers. And we want people to be able to freely read a paper, open to read, but also to be able to download and reuse the content. And, and both Robert, Robert talked a, a bit about some of the advantages of a particular license we're going to use, which is called a CC BY license, a Creative Commons by Attribution license, which allows basically anyone to reuse the content for any purpose, be that you know, text or data mining to drive new scholarship, but also to, to do other stuff with. And whether that's putting up, you know, putting a, a copy of a paper on another website where it may attract a fresh audience, or whether it's sticking a, a set of papers together with a covering synthesis um, and adding value to the papers in that way. The CC BY license will allow that. <coughs> so how does, how does a, and based on our policy just says, if you're an author funded, producing ICUK-funded research, we expect you to publish it in a journal which is compliant with our policy. A journal gains compliance by offering either a gold option, which is you know, the, the gold 
immediate open access from the publisher's website with the CC BY license, and normally we would then expect an article processing charge to be paid for that. Otherwise, they must provide a green root deposit of a copy of the paper in a repository where we would expect to see the final peer-reviewed version of a manuscript in a repository available within a maximum of six months, apart from research funded by the Arts and Humanities and the Economic and Social Science Research Councils, where for an intermediate transition period will allow a 12-month embargo period because those particular communities are probably not as advanced in their open access offerings as the science, technical and medical side of the world is. And basically, we've committed to put our money where our mouth is, so we're providing block grants to all the research institutions that we support to basically cover the cost of um, publishing through article processing charges. Um, and we're expecting institutions, so all the major universities will have to establish publication funds, our block grant we paid into that fund, and then it will be up to institutions of how they allocate that between departments and to, and to researchers to support the publication process. And we're going to put very little guidance in that area. Basically, it's approach we're saying, here, you know, here is a block of money. Take that money and use it to best effect to deliver our policy. Provided it delivers immediate gold open access, how you spend it is up to you. And basically, we've done some maths to come up with how much money we think we need. Um, on average, the data we have suggests that Research Council-funded research produces in the region of 26,000 articles per year. That's about a fifth, 20% or so, of a total amount of research publications coming out for UK as a whole. About 90% of those arise within the university sector, and something like 10% come out of our own institutes within the research councils. So we know how many publications. We then know approximately how much an article costs to publish. The Finch Report on Open Access suggested the average APC is around £700. It very much varies with disciplines. Um, however, take that figure, add VAT, pay it 80% FEC, because that's what we do, and it comes out to just under six, over £16,000, £16,500 an article. So basically that gives us the side of our pot of money. We recognise if we said we were going to fund 100% open access next year, you wouldn't spend all the money, to be honest. Um, it's, it's a big ask, asking the scholarly communication, to go from one model of publishing to another model overnight. So for us, it's very much built around the concept of this is a journey rather than an event. And we're going to ramp up our support for open access over the next five years as the community itself adapts to this new model of publishing. So... In the first year, we're talking about providing enough funding for about 45% of articles going gold. In the fifth year, where we think we're reaching a steady state, we'll move to about 75% compliance in gold. The rest will be delivered by green open access. Now, I can't tell you how much money we're going to make available in five years' time because the Treasury won't allow us to give funding commitments beyond the end of the um, comprehensive spending review in two years. But and you can do the maths. You notice it goes up by 3 million between year one and year two. And the trick is it goes by, by 3 million all the following years. So by year five, it'll be around about 29 million. The key thing is we're going to hold a review after two years. 
So we want to hear how the pulse is bedding in. What are the issues? Have we provided enough money? Have we provided too much money, for example? We're going to listen to what you as researchers and, and the universities are saying, and after two years we're going to review the whole thing and see, let's just see, is the policy on track? What have we got to do? Have there been unintended consequences? You know, have, and so, you know, we also we don't want to give an overall commitment until we've had that interim review process and see how things are bedding down. So the message to our community is, let us know how it's going. If there are problems, let us know. If, you think, if there are good bits, let us know what you think those things are. And after two years, we'll review it and look to see how we take the policy forward going from there. Now, I'm, I'll skip over that graph. Basically, policy in a nutshell, we're expecting authors to publish in journals which are compliant with our policy. Journals achieve compliance through either gold or a green route. Our preference as research funders is for gold because for us it gives a better quality of open access and it provides more opportunities for innovation and thus more opportunities for growth and benefit to the UK as a whole. And basically we're seeing that transition taking something in the next five years or so. Now, the overall message is we think we're on a, um, on a journey rather than an event and let's work together to make that, make that journey happen more seamlessly and more smoothly. And I think the final point I want to make is, basically, we're, we're introducing disruption into the scholarly communications market. You know, we're putting a lot of money into this. We're trying to change the model. A lot of the problems we've had up till now, people might argue, are because of the way journals have priced their subscriptions bundled all their subscriptions together into what are called the big deals. You know, libraries have had to manage very difficult choices between what journals they can afford to take, what journals they can't afford to take. We're introducing disruption into the market. We would encourage researchers and their institutions to take advantage of that disruption to drive change in the way you do stuff. What we can't be in a position in five years' time is basically the, the journals have basically move back into that space, establish new ways of working, which basically just remove all the benefits as we see them of trying to improve access and, and drive innovation in that publishing space. I'll leave it there with a, a challenge to the research community. Thank you. Thanks to Mark. Um, I'll follow now over to you, and I'll follow the um, format, I think, with the other chairs, which is that let's get two or three questions that are go. Um, who would like to go first? One there. One there. Let's go there first with the red scarf on. Um, I'm Holly Shaham from the Royal Society. It's gone. Um, I was just wondering. I think so. Um, I was just wondering whether you had a perspective on what's going to happen internationally with regard to these mandates, um, and whether other countries are likely to follow suit with um, the Gold OA. Okay. And there's another question here. Thank you. 
Shirley Ayres, Disruptive Social Care. Mark, I'd just like to pick up on your point um, where you challenge researchers to use it or lose it because it's actually, you're making a huge investment over five years. So what incentives will be in place for researchers to take advantage of disrupting the market? And what do you think, as a panel, will happen if the universities don't take advantage of that disruption? Okay, and then one third, third one there, and then we'll throw to the panel. Um, uh, Faris from Brunel University. You want to just shout? <laughs> she said that um, the, the access is not only the problem. The specialist language or the, 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 the degree of language used in, uh, used in the articles is, is high level. So um, my question is... Um, you didn't, I mean, like, um, mention it and um, integrate it with the, with the whole project. Okay. Um, Mark, do you want to have a go first on the use it or lose it question? Okay. Um, I'm not sure I actually said use it, use it or lose it in the, in the sense that... <laughs> I think we can all recognise that the, the, the way the scholarly communication market has gone now, it, it's not working properly, and that's one of the drivers for the open access movement. Um, you know, the seminal moment that Robert talked about where, where um, Mark Walport just couldn't read the, read the research that Wellcome Trust had funded. You know, for us, it's not good enough. You know, we speak to a much wider constituency than the research community. We want... We want People who have an interest in our research fail to access, and they can't do that at the moment. So therefore, you know, that is one of the drivers for our policy on improving access through, through open access. So basically, the feeling is we're putting quite a bit of money into this. It could well be in excess of £100 million over the next five years. We want to see academics and institutions take advantage of that and think about new ways of, of delivering research papers new innovative ways of communicating their research. And I think especially new ways of generating the impact of that research as well, rather than having just a traditional mechanism where it's, it's in a journal, it's behind a subscription barrier. Anything you can do as academics institutions to say, actually, you know, why don't we think about establishing a new university press? You use our brand as an institution you know, to, to help... You know, sell the quality of the research in a particular particular area, and even if it's not publishing new material, it might be say pulling together material which is under a CC by license and representing that which you think is the best, most impactful material in a particular area, and giving your sort of you know, your 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 quality stamp to it as another way of potentially creating impact for that material and getting it noticed. Did anybody hear that question? That was how will you evaluate the um, bet value for money of the um, investment that's going to be made? Would you like to um, comment on that? 
I could say, watch this space. <laughs> we're, work, we're, we're working on that area at the moment, how we do... It's, part of it's around the compliance monitoring to actually understand how well it's being implemented as a policy. And then, yes, we've got to look to see how well that has translated into the impact of that research. But, again, it's how do we measure that impact in a meaningful way as well, rather than... It can't just be down to citation factors, you know, citation indices. Stephen? Uh, so one thing I wanted to add, which I only know because Mark said it in the last talk we were at together, was about uh, uh, the disruptive nature of it. So one of the things that RCUK will be doing, unless they've changed their mind in the last three weeks, will be gathering information from research institutions about how they've spent the money, what APCs have they paid, and so that information will be gathered and it will be published and made available. And so I think that's one of the most uh, the additional interesting features that will help to change the market in publishing because universities will be able to compare you know, who between them is getting good value for money. Uh, so researchers will have that information. And also, I mean, as I said in my talk then, the, the very exposure of researchers to the actual costs of publishing which is then the total cost of dissemination. At the minute, it's split, and they don't see it. They might, they might see what the page charges are uh, and the APC is, but they don't see what the subscription costs are because a lot of them are tied up in confidentiality agreements. So the market at the minute doesn't work, and that gives an advantage to the seller. So uh, we want to change that now to give uh, more advantage to the buyer uh, because the spender is largely the public. We're spending their money, and so we want to make sure that the market functions, and so that... That in itself, I think, will be disruptive. Robert, I don't know if you wanted to comment on the international perspective. Um, yes, well, I'll, I'll try. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the UK is clearly leading this. Um, though we've seen noises and we've seen the, the, the policy uh, pronouncements in Europe where they have a, a commitment now, I think it's by 2016, like they want 60% of their research to be open access. Now, they perhaps don't define quite as clearly as we've done in the UK, whether that's um, green or, or gold. But I think the thing we, we tend to forget in all this is all this discussion about green and gold, it, it really affects the hybrid journals. And what is already happening is you know, massive, massive uptake in pure gold, you know, the, the, the plus one type journals, the plus biology, e-life. Um, and it's clear anyone can go onto PubMed and do a search for the PLOS journals, and you'll see that NIH are publishing huge volumes of research there. For Wellcome Trust, though it's a, a figure we don't like bandied around perhaps too much because whatever reason, but PLOS One is the single most used journal by Wellcome Trust authors. So I think the idea that I think we are leading the way in the UK, but I think internationally we're already seeing massive uptake, particularly in the, in the pure gold uh, journals. But I suspect um, Willits uh, will, will be trying to get his counterparts, you know, a G7 and so on, to, you know, adopt similar policies. Because ultimately, we do need to flip the model away from subscriptions to a, a, a model which is scalable uh, with research, and that is what the gold model is. The other question, do so you want to come in on the international? Just one last point. I'd like to see a bit more transparency from Willits. He's very keen on it, obviously, <laughs> but I'd like to know who he's talking to and what they're saying and what are the discussions that are happening around with the EU, with America, with China, whoever, about the impact of the UK's initiative around the world and whether it is being warmly received or, or not, because many other countries have gone down a, very, a much greener route. 
don't know whether Mark wants to comment on that as the poster boy for RCUK. Might be um, a position. Unfortunately, I'm not the poster boy for David Willits. I could comment. I mean, yeah. certainly we're seeing other funders. So fairly recently I had the German, the Austrian funding fund, uh, AWF, the Austrian funders, send me a copy of their open access policy. And it was basically word for word a copy of the ICUK policy. They just changed change the names. Um, and they're, they're going to implement that in Austria. Uh, similarly, DFG in Germany has a policy to support um, open access publishing. Um, I was actually talking to a guy called Peter Suber, who is a great um, supporter of Green, as a commentator on open access in the US, supporting Green about the way our policy is going. And he felt one of the drivers in the US would be when the politicians see that UK research is being taken up more than US research because it's more immediately available, naked self-interest will kick in. And he said he actually felt in the US, they'll, um, they'll look at this and say, hi, you know, hang on a minute, the UK's research is being used more than this US research. We're going to have to do something about this and make our research more accessible, you know, through immediately, immediate open access rather than waiting for some sort of embargo period through a... Um, through a repository, a green-based route. Um, but, yeah, we are in, we are in the, the forefront of this in terms of international perspective, but we are hearing, you know, we're talking to a lot of countries, we're talking to a lot of funders. You know, we, we don't want to turn around in five years and find everyone else is still on the starting line. Um, we, so it is in our interest to make sure other countries, you know, work with us to, to advance this cause. Um, I wanted to pick up on the final question about the access, about the language used, and I didn't know whether that linked as well with the cultural and career issues for researchers, and I don't know whether you might want to pick up on that one, actually, Stephen. Uh, well, I think it's a good point. I mean, I, I address it. I think that's one of the values that comes out of Eli's, for example, uh, initiative in producing text summaries, and other journals already do this as well to some extent, and I would like to see that become... Universal. I don't know whether RCUK are welcome should have it as a policy for their researchers. Maybe that's not a bad thing. But I think you're absolutely right. There's no point in just putting the information out there on the Internet. If you, you want everybody to be able to use it, then it has to be made accessible. I don't think it's going to be practical to write two versions of the paper. Uh, I say that as an author. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, uh, I certainly would feel uh, quite happy preparing a, a summary, and I certainly feel that high-ranking journals, like Nature or whatever, could insist that their authors do it. I'm sure they'd quite happily do it if it was a condition of publication. Shall we get some more questions from the floor? One here, two at the front here. We've got four altogether in that round. So. There was one here, it's just here. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I remember this one from 15 years ago. I haven't read the Pinch report, as I should have. Um, but could you, could you explain uh, the Holocaust without knowing where?
Okay. Okay, we'll come back to that. There's one, two questions at the front, one each here. We need so to speak we up, sorry. While we were going through the presentations, it, it struck me. I wondered if there is maybe a risk that, um, that academics, researchers think that by making their papers open access that they've done enough to promote open access and, and yeah, so to promote the okay. research and to promote impact. Okay. Do you want to go with yours next door? Okay, it does work, right. <laughs> Um, I, um, my name's Alan Palmer, I'm from the British Academy, um, we represent the humanities and social sciences and um, much like Jude have been involved in various uh, meetings about the impact of open access, particularly on social sciences and humanities and I'm just struck once again by how the conversation we've had just now and some elements earlier on are driven by a bias towards STEM um, and there are many issues within the social sciences and the humanities when it comes to um, open access. One being learned societies and how much more important they are in those areas um, and how they're very small. They're not massively publisher-driven in the same sense. Um, and one thing we might be in danger of losing by a rapid implementation of gold open access is the advantages from some of the learned societies um, in uh, awarding academic studentships, in providing conference grants, in providing that support to early career researchers as they develop their research publishing uh, behaviour. Um, I think there is a lot to be gained from open access, completely um, behind it in principle. I think we're still not giving enough thought to some of the implications and the issues and what might get lost by such a rapid move towards it bearing in mind it's only five months away if you have receipt of um, a non-ESRC or AHRC grant. Okay, thanks. Should we go with those three then? Um, gold and green. I don't know, Mark, do you want to do your... Well, I was going to look to a member of the Finch. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for my, set, for my, um, uh, my sins, I was, on the, I was on the Finch group. Um, so the difference between green and gold... Very simply, is uh, gold is where a fee is paid, and when a fee is paid, that article is not subject to any embargo. And typically, if we're like Wellcome Trust and RCUK funding, must be licensed in a way which facilitates for reuse. And typically, a funder like Wellcome Trust would require the publisher to make that article freely available through our repository. So the author basically just says, yeah, I want this to be done. They tick a box, and it all happens, and an invoice turns up. The green route does require the author actually doing something other than ticking a box. It requires the author having to remember to self-archive that piece of research. And typically, um, you know, most, most publishers would not be happy with that research being self-archived for at least six months um, in fields outside of STEM. Some publishers I've heard talk of sort of 36 months or even 60 months, which... Um, I don't know how that fits in with the internet age when people wait about you know a nanosecond for Google to respond. The only waiting five years for an article seems a little bit out of touch. Um, but that's really the key difference between, between green and gold. Okay, um, Stephen, do you want to talk about how will academics think they've done enough? 
Okay. Uh, I mean, I think there is some risk in that, but um, I, I'm not overly worried about it, I would have to say. I think once uh, people outside academia and the general public start to realise that you know, research is becoming more and more accessible to them and they see that there's value in it for them, that will in itself stimulate increased demand. And I presume many of them starting to read it will find that they can't read it, and of course then that will stimulate a demand for interpretation, either uh, directly from the horse's mouth, get the authors to do it, or editorial with editorial assistance, copywriters um, uh, at the journals, or through intermediaries, you know, there's great activity going on in the blogosphere, sort of interpreting the, the research literature for people. There's some uh, fantastic exemplars of that. And so I think that that whole process, that interaction, will in itself uh, create a pull on researchers that actually they need to do. It's n it isn't enough just to publish. And I think the rise of the prominence of public engagement activities I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, and there are some of my colleagues I wouldn't wish to see involved in it because they'd probably make an ass of themselves and a mess of the situation. But uh, I do think there's a, a dialogue and a dynamic to the process that I, I see as encouraging. Mark, with your RCUK hat on, do you want to comment on the bias towards STEM? Okay. I mean, maybe just pick up on that, the previous point. Yeah, sure. um, yeah, just getting the research out there probably isn't enough. But it, it's, it's helping it on its way. If you can't even get to the research, you're not going to get any impact at all. So at least, you know, one of the you know, part of the approach is removing the barriers. But again, the, license, the particular license we want to use, the Creative Commons by Attribution license, the CC by license, then allows those added value services to be built on top, one of which could be, you know, people writing that, plain language interpretation of the research, you know, to help help the you know help the take up of the research and, and the understanding of the research by people being able to sort of republish a paper with a description of it. But going specifically to the is it biosource STM? Well to some extent it is, because if we look at the amount of funding going from the research councils, the largest proportion goes into the STM side. I mean, I, I'm trying to, I was trying to think of the figures as we were answering the earlier questions. Um, don't quote me on the numbers, but I, my guess is about 12 or 13% of the money goes into AHRC and ESRC, and the rest goes across the other councils which necessarily represent the STM side, which is a representative... There is less money in the social sciences and the arts humanities funded through the research councils than there, in terms of proportion of research than there is in the, the, arts, in the science and the STM side. But, I think so saying, you know, the... <coughs> I don't see the, the underlying principles being any different in terms of if we can improve access to the research, we can help drive innovation and we can you know by improving access whatever the research it must be a good thing because it improves impact it helps drive the innovation it helps drives the reuse it allows others to access that research now yes i've heard arguments that the cc by license isn't appropriate in all areas in, in some of the softer uh, social sciences and arts and humanities areas in which case there are going to be some journals where gold just isn't appropriate Another good journal where gold probably isn't going to be appropriate is going to be Nature. 
you know, I've, I was actually came from a meeting with, with NPG this afternoon where we're discussing it. They probably think that gold isn't an appropriate route for them. They will have to offer a green route to compliance with our policy. So I think the main thing is we are listening. So if things aren't working, you know, we'll, we'll have to take that on board and, if necessary, revise the policy. But we don't want to say just because discipline has difficulties, it shouldn't progress down the open access route. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, well, uh, not specifically on, on that. I just want to uh, just go back to a previous point about um, lay seminaries and so on. And, and I don't know this site, so I don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent, but I was drawn to it a few, weeks, a few days ago. It's called minimanuscripts.com, and they are, I'll read it to you, it's a collection of user-generated academic article summaries. Each summary contains a key fact from a manuscript, meaning you can get the article summary in two minutes rather than two hours is its boast. But this is like, uh, as I understand, some sort of like crowdsourcing activity to try and provide a lay summary across, you know, across the entire research output. Sounds ambitious, um, but, you know, fair play to them and good luck to them. So I think there are attempts to try and make research more accessible in not just in the sense that you can get to it, but you can understand it. Just uh, come back to the STEM bias question. I think. I mean, I think the question raises some very valid questions. You unfortunately have the wrong panel up here. Okay. Oh, I know. I know. We've had the wrong panel in a lot of these debates. Unfortunately. And he works at the Wellcome Trust. But uh, you know. But I would encourage you, if you're not already in there, you know, to get into the blogosphere and start arguing the case and you know, discussing the problems and then uh, you know seeing if the community itself can come up with solutions. I mean, I think, I mean, this figure of one or one and a half percent of total costs of the research being due to publishing applies probably to the hard sciences, which where, you know, a lot of money is spent, but it's a very expensive process, and that's why, relatively speaking, publishing is relatively cheap. The, the, the numbers, I don't know, because I don't work in the social sciences or the humanities, but I imagine the numbers are a lot different, and the fraction spent on publishing is probably a greater fraction of the total and that would be, and so maybe some adjustment in the calculations may need to be made for those sorts of activities. But I totally agree with Mark that, you know, no exemptions. I don't think they're asking for an exemption. I think they're asking for more consideration of their particular issues to understand their contexts um, and some of the issues around um, focusing on journal articles um, ignores the issue of monographs um, and the issues around the half-lifes um, and the issues around the predominance of small, independent, learned societies as some of the key publishers of humanities and social sciences research. Um, I think there are a lot of concerns. I don't think the communities feel that the Research Council's policy has properly addressed them yet. Interesting to know that there's room for manoeuvre, potentially. Um, and I think, rather than go on the blogosphere, we'll probably try and get into RCUK meetings. <laughs> I mean, okay. I would say, I mean, I would say our policy applies to peer-reviewed outputs which are published in journals or conference proceedings. I mean, I'm hearing lots of interesting ideas about how people might make monographs open access and new ways of making books open access as well. The one thing I can say is, you know, we're putting our money where our mouth is and hopefully we're seeing that start to drive innovation in the publishing market itself. So the opportunity is there, again, in the social sciences for people to say, actually... Could we come up with a model that works, given the fact that the research funders are prepared to pay for this? So it's makes some challenges with you as well. Got a chart, a couple more questions before half five. One there, and one there. Uh, look, yeah, hi. 
Uh, Warren Pearce from Making Science Public at University of Nottingham. Um, we heard some quite reassuring things, I thought, about how the intrin- uh, intrinsic merit of a work is more important than the journal that it's the, uh, the work is published in, particularly because that's a welcome trust policy. I'm just wondering, is this something that's going to become more widespread? Because we heard from Stephen that that's not necessarily the case on the ground at the moment. If it is going to become... <clears throat> Excuse me. More widespread in the future. What implications does that have for the journals at the top of a tree, who perhaps are going to have their sort of uh, kudos eroded, perhaps by that um, idea? Okay. And then I think Patrick. Hi. Um. Two quick questions, really. The first is uh, if. Uh, RCUK-funded research should be open access. Why isn't HEFKE-funded research, uh, QR-funded research, open access too? And should it be? And is there a route for it? And has anybody, did Finch really look at that or anything? The second thing is, if you look at green open access, it looks a terrible mess. I mean, university repositories are, you know, hopelessly out of date, they're hopelessly swamped already, you can't search them. You can get to it via Google if you know exactly what you're looking for, but uh, has anybody thought about putting some money into improving green open access so it isn't in its current lamentable state of uh, repositories all differently run, all differently you know, structured and, and all very, very hard to search? Okay, and then one final question there. Yeah, I'm um, Fang Longxu from the uh, London School of Economics. Um, it's a very short question. Um, what the open access the policy in relation to the copyright issue? Okay. Who wants to start then with the intrinsic merit of the work and the quality of journals? I'll, I'll yeah. have a crack at that. Yeah. Um, I think the intrinsic merit of the work is the is the bottom line. That's the most important thing. Uh, impact on journals, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, uh, because partly that's that impact. I mean, that their reputations. Okay, they do um, they do protect them. They cultivate them. Uh, it is true that on average, a paper in Nature is likely to be better than the Journal of uh, Random Science, for example. But the trouble is that's only an interesting question if you're looking to compare one journal with another and many of the comparisons and evaluations that one is making is of a particular piece of work or a particular individual. And so I think we, we simply have to get away from... Um, uh, I think even the idea of the journal itself is coming uh, apart at the seams. It was a great idea back in the 1700s uh, when printing presses were invented and people started using journals rather than correspondence in longhand. But, um, you know, we've seen with the rise of PLOS One, which will basically publish uh, almost on... I know it's largely regarded as a life sciences journal, but they will publish, I think, uh, on 
any topic as long as it's of good technical quality. And so they public, they get 4,000 manuscripts a month now. You know, they've been so successful. And people don't really, you know, I don't, I used to, when I started out, I used to get current contents every week and, and page through that. I don't do that anymore. I just search. Uh, I use Google. If I have to, Google Scholar is actually quite good. I don't take the point, really, that repositories are that hard to search if you, uh, uh, if you use the right tools. But I, I you know, it, Journal reputations, I think, uh, well, I think there will be a move to protect them because research is a very competitive business. You know, we are competitive people, and so that will be a driver. But I, I don't know. I can't really predict what is going to happen. But certainly I want to see a widespread and public and loud disavowal of the use of journal impact factors. Yeah. I mean, I would say, yes, the journals have a role because we need to know... <coughs> We're publishing quality science, and it's sound science, which is out there. Sorry, sound research. You can tell I come from an STM background as well. Um, <coughs> and, you know, journals can live or die by their period, you know, the, their reputation for publishing quality science. Research. <laughs> but... Yeah, it, it doesn't mean they have to also select on the, the potential impactness of that research. Um, so hence, you know, I'm quite keen to see how this issue of the mega journals like PLOS One, uh, Nature, what's the Nature Journal? Um, Scientific Scientific Communications and, and the other, Elsevier are starting a mega journal as well. What the role of those is going to be in terms of priding the quality review step and then maybe others can then pick up on the the potential impact of a, of a paper through other mechanisms. Okay. Any more? Yes, I'd say, does anybody, does anybody feel happy to answer the Hefke question? Okay, I noticed David Sweeney left the room yeah. earlier. Um, <laughs> my understanding of Hefke is that for the REF 2020, they are saying that submissions for REF 2020 must be available in the open access. And they're consulting on that at the moment. My understanding of that is they will say they're going to be harvesting REF 2020 outputs from institutional repositories. So I think they've given a fairly clear statement in that area. Um, but they're less clear about is it green or is it gold. They just want, if it's, for, if it's in the REF for 2020, it should be available through open access. Um, I don't know, Robert, if you want to comment on the green gold, the, the green mess. The green gold mess. <clears throat> Yes. Um, so we run a repository called, um, called Europe PubMed Central now. It used to be UK PubMed Central. Um, and that, that's, I don't know what you get if you mix green and gold, but whatever you get, that's what our repository is. And of course, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that, um, and I've used this sort of pejorative language before, but researchers are pretty rubbish at self-archiving. So we have about 60% compliance with the Wellcome Trust policy, and of that 60%, about 85% or 90% actually when I last looked of the research which gets into our repository for Wellcome Trust funded papers gets there because the publisher puts it in there. Um, so authors can self-archive, they rarely do. Uh, my solution to this, is, uh, my preference to this is certainly in the life sciences isn't going to address the, the, the non-life sciences question. But my, the preferred approach is, is we have a, a, a repository which can ingest content, whether it's come from the publisher or from the author, but mainly from the publisher. If it's available under a, under a really permissive license like CC BY, 
Um, universities who have a you know perfectly legitimate requirements for the you know legitimate need for their research to be in their repository, well they can just come and harvest it from our repository. So we're worried about looking after it. We'll convert uh, documents into XML. We'll preserve it, and then we'll allow you know anyone else can just come and harvest it. So I think green and gold can live side by the repositories can live side by side. But I think the reality is, say, authors don't self-archive, so I would encourage other disciplines to establish sort of subject-based repositories where the research can be found. I mean, it's no, there is no coincidence that the publishers, the big publishers issue takedown notices to PubMed Central, in Europe PubMed Central. They take, issue takedown notices for content which, in their view, shouldn't be there because it gets found, because in the life sciences, many researchers start in PubMed, and PubMed has a one-to-one a -one link with PubMed Central. So our content can be found, but I say once it's in our repository under a liberal CC BY license, and perhaps with some vaguely good um, uh, metadata in, to indicate which repository we should push this to, there's no reason why we can't start surfacing that content for um, LSE or Imperial or whoever to come and harvest that, rather than worry about trying to collect all the content themselves. So I think it can live side by side. Um, it's now half past five. I didn't know if there was an easy answer to open access and copyright that somebody wanted to quickly give, or whether you wanted to perhaps do that over a drink. So I understand that the reception is available to start straight away rather than six o'clock. I don't want to keep you all from a drink, those of you who have been here all day. Um, so shall we draw it to a close there? Can we thank our panel, um, who've been fantastic? Lots and lots of information and thoughts there to take away. So thanks very much. Thank you.